0: Welcome to Deep Pacific, a Pacifica podcast that shares Islander views and voices. I'm Kalani Rages, your Millennial Indigenous Advocate and host. We are recording on the 26th of October, 2020. Never forget, Black lives all around the world still matter, especially in West Papua where observers estimate between 100,000 to 500,000 people have been killed by Indonesia. So, I hope you think carefully about every trip you take to Bali. On the other side of the world, Breonna Taylor's killers need to all be arrested. The carceral system, capitalism, and imperialism as a whole need to be abolished in order to rein in the effects of climate change. Queer Pacifica people, as always, still need to be supported. And yet we are still here, under the specter of all of this bad in the world, there is you and I, and we are still here, present, together in this space, which I have created specifically for people like us. I hope you are safe and protected. Also, by the way, I apologize about the echo. I don't know if it's a problem for you, but um, yeah, I'm recording in my new apartment, so... It's really interesting. It's super empty still. I would like to begin with the acknowledgement that I am recording on Guajan, Islas Marianas, currently a territory occupied by the U.S., one of the last remaining colonies in the world. I am not from this island, so I am a settler. Although I'm Chamorro, it is still with respect that I occupy this land and space. We begin every episode with a quote from an indigenous Pacifica person that resonates. Today's quote... We have always learned from the earth around us. So now I do not lament my lack of roots. Instead, I grow them myself. So every day, I am a windblown seed. I am foreign accents and different skin. Every day, I fall towards the earth and am reborn in dirt. I am blood in uniform and severed tongue. Every day, I am the blood I want. Every day, I look around. Hold on tight to those I love, and I grow into an extended family tree. William Alfred Nu'utupu Giles is an Afakasi Samoan writer, scholar who studied as a Kundiman Fellow with the First Wave Program at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Will is also a Brave New Voices International Poetry Slam champion and won the 2015 National Underground Poetry Slam They are an award-winning spoken word poet, community organizer, and arts educator-slash-poet facilitator from Hawaii with the Pacific Tongues and Youth Speaks Hawaii Organizations. They have a really cool website called willgaiospoetry.com, which I will include a link to in the show notes if you want to check them out. Give it a look. This quote resonates because this episode will be about family, what family means to us as Pacifica people what family means to our cultures, and how family influences us as individuals. You will hear mainly from Simone, our Chamoru baby doll Yinin Guahan, who last spoke on Artivism, episode 5, followed by one of my favorite beautiful Tahitian souls, Teotihuahere, beautiful inside and out. That is right, this will be a shorter-than-usual episode today, I've also prepared a special portion of this episode as something of a clip reel, pulling the first 10 contributors who spoke on family in previous episodes into this one. That will really be something different, I feel, and I hope it makes you remember how beautiful, how painful, how sentimental those pieces were. Listening to them again had a bit of a sentimental tinge to me because it made me want to hear all of their pieces again, which I'm sure I might do, though I do tire of hearing myself talk. So we will end today with a discussion on a study on settler colonialism in the Pacific, specifically in the Hawaiian kingdom, Guahan, and the Northern Marianas, where I am from. You definitely want to stay for that one. Now let's do it. Let's dive in. The driving question today. How do Pacific Islanders feel about family? So, a family is so many things. A family is defined as a social group made up of parents and their children. Another definition is a group of people who share a common ancestor. Family could also be a group of people living together, otherwise called a household. A fourth definition is a grouping that shares certain characteristics. Families have been described as everything under the sun. There are wholesome families and broken families, dysfunctional, overbearing, and close-knit families, small ones and huge ones, with branches as numerous as banyan trees. Many of us in the Pacific have family who are diasporic or living away from the homeland, or we are the diasporic ones living away returning home only for important or close family funerals weddings important family celebrations and events not all of us get to return home as often as we want obviously if only right what determines how close a family is well many different factors play a role good regular communication, acceptance of differences, supporting each other in good and hard times, being consistently there, participating in the community and cultural practices together. In our given and chosen families, if we have these elements, we can weather strong storms. As Pacific Islanders, we know these storms and typhoons are inevitable. Pacific Islanders are infamous for our large families who are often dependent upon each other. This makes the family unit the most important force in our lives with the power to shape us, to change us, and to cause harm. A family wields a lot of power in Pacifica life. They inform your thoughts on the world, on other races and places. They form your dietary choices, Usually they determine your religion, they play a role in how you see education and shape your definition of success. What do you think about when you see the word family, my awesome, precious listener? What smiling or brooding faces come to mind? What memories? Are they good or are they bad? We will be discussing this more in detail during these contributions, so sit tight. Here is our first contributor, Ginen Guahan. See Simone.
1: Half a day, everyone. My name is Simone Perez. I was born and raised in the island of Guahan, located in Micronesia. And I'm very honored to be here today to talk about family. The words that come to mind when I'm thinking of the word family, it honestly, as of right now, I think of generational trauma. And I think it's because of all the time I've been spending back home because of the pandemic. And, you know, when you get older in the family, you start to realize the real, like, family dynamic and things aren't as simple as you once thought they were. And, you realize why a lot of relationships are the way that they are. And there's a lot of like things that you wish for different, but you can't help. And you realize that like you don't want to carry that on. When you start your own family, well, I don't plan on starting my own family anytime soon. I'm only 21. <laughs> But I also say generational trauma because of all the unpacking I've done and the impact of all these different family dynamics and family drama slash history and how that's impacted me as a person and how I view my own relationships and my views on culture, like literally everything that I am. And I'm unlearning a lot of that because those kinds of things are like the reason why certain Relationships with people, both platonic and romantic and stuff like that just never worked out. And, you know, I just needed to figure out a lot of these things on my own. And I do think of generational trauma when I think of family because I just don't want to pass that on to my own family. And I want to help my family heal as much as possible because family's always going to be there. They're always going to be around and they're always going to be people that you hope to see in a sea of strangers. For the sake of time, I'm probably not going to get into too much detail, but I think it is a subject that needs to be discussed further because You know, I feel like a lot of Pacific Islanders especially feel this heavily and I see a lot of people trying to find ways to deal with it and I've seen the grief that it's caused and it, you know, things just need to be changed. What makes up a family in your culture? Well, personally, I really do believe that the term family differs from culture to culture and um, from family to family, to be honest, because for me, a lot of the people that I call family are not blood related to me. I wasn't that close to a lot of my cousins growing up, but a lot of the family friends that I grew up with, I call them my brothers and sisters practically. So that's just how I view family. Like I believe family is the people that you feel responsible for, that you would sacrifice and like hold their hand as they're going through a loss, stuff like that. And... They're the people that make you want to be your best self and that you can be your whole like honest self around them. That's what family is to me. Do you think the definition of family has been shifting due to colonialism? Yes. Colonialism really took us for a spin around the earth a couple of times and then dropped us in the middle of nowhere. But um, colonialism definitely had an impact on how we've been defining family and I think Because of like different colonial events, we've been forced to accept things for the way that it's always been and adapt, probably not in the most healthy ways. And I think that's probably one of the reasons why we are suffering from our different like generational traumas, you know. And honestly, being told that because this is how it's always been, this is how it will always be. That's one of the most agitating things you can tell me, like my biggest pet peeve because I want to see our people, my family, our people move forward and not carry this with us in the upcoming generations for when I have my own children, when my brother has his own children, you know, which I'm hoping is soon because I want to be an auntie already, but I think it's just something that that kind of mindset has really like casted itself heavily on the minds of our grandmas and grandpas and stuff and things just need to change and it doesn't need to be like that now, you know? Where do you see your culture evolving in terms of families in the future? What would you like to see? I was originally going to say this whole thing about like where I want to see my family in the future and stuff like that, like my own personal family. That I start on my own but I realized that that wasn't really answering the question that was just me saying my hopes and dreams um, manifesting it but you know after thinking about it like a lot more and in the kind of theme that I brought up in my segment of the episode Um, I'm hoping that we worked our way to a point of being able to hold each other accountable for the actions that we have and not letting our ego get in the way of that, you know. And I'm hoping that, like, if we need to do something for ourselves, we'll have a family environment that respects that. And it's not our way of trying to give up on our family or, like, we don't want to spend time with family, you know. And I'm pretty sure a lot of people can relate to this, but it's just a way of us doing what we need to do to, to accomplish all the things that they've always wanted for us, you know? And I'm just hoping for a lot more understanding and accountability within our families. That's what I would like to see. Thank you.
0: Sainama Asi Simone for that honest and sincere contribution to this important topic of family. One of the words Simone thought of when thinking of family was generational trauma and how colonization has affected her cultural and larger worldview. For a majority of her piece, Simone mentions trauma, a subject which I have been talking to my friends and other members of the collective and my family a lot about recently. Thank you, 2020. Thanks, capitalism. Thanks again, imperialism, white supremacist and racist. Thanks a lot. Anyway, I listened to this random podcast episode on this podcast called Last Day by the Lemonada Media. Lemonada, not Illuminati, okay? It was an interview about trauma with Dr. Mate, who is a trauma expert and psychologist. This episode blew my mind, I'm telling you. It took my thoughts on trauma, traumatic experiences, and my expectations of others and how they deal with their trauma, and it turned them upside down. I highly recommend you give it a listen if you want the same kind of insight. I'll include a link to it in the show notes. Because we're speaking on family, this is kind of a necessary segue, so let's think this through a tiny bit. To make a long story short, trauma is a wound. And any wound, physical or mental or what have you, you won't always see it, but it shows up in how you carry yourself, both physically, emotionally, mentally. It affects how your worldview is shaped. Trauma is like microplastics. It can be so small that nobody thinks it's a big deal until it adds up. Then it's dangerous. It can actually kill you. We receive trauma and we traumatize others with our actions, with our words, and it can creep into our thoughts as well as our dreams and our subconscious. I'm sure everyone has a traumatic dream that they can think of. At the top of their head everyone's capacity to deal with trauma is different and so many factors can affect this including how secure they feel in themselves and their communities how comfortable they are in being their authentic selves and how strong their support system is as pacific islanders oftentimes that support system is bingo our families and our churches and religious or other communities in our cultures and our islands also. So now that we know that everyone's capacity for trauma is different, let me also say that we experience trauma differently. Two twin sisters can go through the exact same traumatic experience, but they may respond differently depending on their personal capacity to respond or to receive trauma. Some people can get traumatized by something like receiving a rejection letter, right? What do you do after receiving a rejection letter? That says a lot. Other people, this might not faze them. Some can get traumatized by being spanked as a child with a rice cooker line. I don't know about you, but anyway. Others, this is just another walk in the park. Not to say that the people walking in the park are not traumatized, but their capacity to receive and deal with the trauma is maybe larger. A person's capacity to receive and deal with the trauma determines how they cope inwards, in their minds. The feeling of acceptance and belonging to a community can determine how they cope outwardly or in their actions. These also play a role in the capacity of the community as a whole to deal with the traumatic event, such as the aftermath of a typhoon, which with how often these occur here, if you ever wonder at how resilient our elders are, think about how often they must deal with the trauma of typhoons growing up. So it follows that although trauma can be experienced by one person, the effects of that trauma can radiate outwards to their family, to their community, to their nation. Finding ways to deal with the trauma we receive and we create, such as by seeking counseling and finding a good Black or Indigenous therapist could help us deal with trauma in our lives, among other ways. Other problems in our Pacifica lives really are a result of how we are dealing with trauma. If you think of your auntie that has a gambling addiction, who's always at the poker every Saturday, If you think about your uncle who may, you know, be an alcoholic. People receive and deal with trauma usually by addiction and addiction to anything. You can be addicted to sex. You can be addicted to specific drugs, prescription drugs, over-the-counter drugs. You could be addicted to online shopping. Oh, someone's guilty. You could be addicted to marijuana. You could be addicted to alcohol, hard liquor. You know, like there's so many things you can be addicted to. And that's largely a result of us seeking solace, seeking comfort from our trauma. So Simone, sorry for that little aside there, but I felt like that was really necessary. Um, Anyway, Simone spoke on how her definition of family is The people you feel responsible for. The ones you would hold their hand when they're going through a loss. We all have those people. I hope you have those people. If you don't have those people, please message me. I will be those people for you. She brings up how uh, in Pacific Island families, trauma can easily radiate outwards. It is a weight upon our shoulders. She says things need to change and it doesn't need to be this way. We need to hold ourselves accountable for our actions and not let our egos get to us. And I couldn't agree more. There are definitely days where my ego gets to me. I think everyone has those days. Sometimes we can't always be there for family or be a good family member 100% of the time because our responsibilities in our lives. I think some of us may need to hear that. I hope that all you family members listening to this episode right now reflect on that sentiment for a second. In your family, what are the dynamics? Do you have love, compassion, and respect for all of them? Do your family members have the same for you? Would they be able to forgive you for not being able to meet their expectations? or will you forgive them? Do you even feel safe to start this conversation? Please let us know at deep pacific pod on Instagram or Twitter. I'd love to hear more experiences. And now here's our next contributor.
2: Yorana, my name is Teatua Tuwahere and I will be sharing my perspective on family as a diasporic Tahitian raised in Hawaii. As a settler to the illegally occupied kingdom of Hawaii, I speak with respect as I seek to support the decolonization of Hawaii. When Kalani, our intelligent, warm, inspiring leader, sent this episode's prompt, I knew I wanted to share. But I had to sit with this one for a few days before I knew what I wanted to say. Family, feti'i, ohana, As Pacific Islanders, nothing matters more than our families. My mother is one of 12. She has seven sisters and four brothers. I have upwards of 30 first cousins. Like the many branches of an udu tree, the Te'iti family has extended across oceans and continents. There are a few siblings in Tahiti, a few in Hawaii, and a few in Europe. My entire life, I have been introduced to new family members. Our homes have always been open to the visiting relative, mattresses on the floor, someone asleep on every couch. The real Tahitian homes have upune'e in the living room, beautiful tifeifei laid out. Family have always been going in and out of my life. As we travel across the ocean, each of us finding our ways. We learn to understand and cherish the relationships we hold with those far away. We've grown up always hearing, it takes a village to raise a child, and it took a village to raise me. I am so eternally grateful to my family. Everything I am is because of my family, my parents, my aunts and uncles, my siblings, so many cousins, my life was never empty. In Hawaii, we are familiar with Hanai family and in Tahiti, our family fa'amu. Our hearts are as vast as the ocean we come from, never restricting, always flowing. Family has never been restricted to blood. We understand family as the bond we create with those we love. Colonization brought with it many terrible things, among them being homophobia and misogyny. We have come to believe what our colonizers forced onto us. Colonization's poisonous grip has embedded itself within the hearts of so many, convincing those who are supposed to love us that we are undeserving of their love. Many of us have had to create chosen family, creating family with people who fully understand, accept, and love us. Like our ancestors, our hearts are not restricted by homophobia and conditional love. We understand that family are those we love and those who love us. Maru for listening to my thoughts.
0: Teatua here, beautiful Tahitian soul, both inside and out our awesome poet Thea Tuahere with upwards of 31st cousins. <laughs> Te'a's pieces are always so resounding, and she actually almost consistently speaks on the topic of family in every contribution she gives. Te'a mentions that our homes have always been open to visiting relatives, every couch and room occupied, even spots on the floor. I don't know about you, but... This is true with me. My dad's family, who I was raised with, is huge. He is one of 11. Spending Sundays at Nang's house or my grandmother's house were just what we did growing up. There were hardly days when my Nang had no grandchildren sleeping at her house. That meant that our weekly family gatherings would have no less than 20 or so people, at least 10 of those being cousins of mine. Some of my favorite memories, to be honest, even though now I look back on those times with a lot more awareness of the family dynamic, were in thinking about my family and thinking about what happens when family comes back home. That's always a really heartwarming thing to think about. Taya says that growing up, we learn to understand and cherish the relationships we hold with those far away. Indeed, I did. I always was so excited whenever I had a Guam cousin coming over to visit because, you know, they were a little bit different, but they still kind of knew the family. And so I was always super excited. And I had cousins who would fight for other cousins who were visiting for their attention. And I'm pretty sure those cousins who were fought over felt really nice and important. (laughs) So Taya also brought up that it takes a village to raise a child. And what a radical idea would be right today to be able to entrust your child to the village and in return also be entrusted with that power to participate in raising another's? She mentions that her life was never empty. I feel like many Pacifica people can relate to that. I, I really sincerely hope that many Pacifica listeners right now can relate to that. If you're ever looking for a family, let me know. My mom is very happy to adopt my friends. And may we never forget that as Pacifica people, our hearts are as vast as the ocean we come from. This episode is dedicated to you, my dear Deep Pacific listener. Whether you are a sister, a brother, a Chetlu to one or a Saina to another, to my parents out there just trying to make it through one quarantine day to another without blowing up, to the family we make in strange places and living situations. I will leave you with a final quote from Thea. Family are those we love and those who love us. That complicated, beautiful, powerful bond we form with another human being is really something, isn't it? That was a beautifully short round of narratives. Unfortunately, many of our contributors, for various reasons, were not able to contribute to this discussion. And that's okay. Some may have been pressed for time because they must work to feed their families. Some don't want to speak on their families. Some maybe felt like this was not an urgent topic to speak on and chose to save their breath. A few already mentioned family in previous contributions to this beautiful idea called Deep Pacific. So, I decided instead of postponing this episode again, I would instead pull from that wealth of perspectives from previous episodes. Kind of like a clip reel. I will not be commenting on each clip like I usually do for normal episodes though. This also won't be very long, this is just 10 of my favorite times our contributors have mentioned family. Here they are, starting with David Garcia or Mapmaker David, who mentioned his family all the way from Episode 1 on Pacific Identity.
3: When I grew up in our home island, Luzon, back in the Philippines, I was taught three languages. First is the language of my mom, Tagalog, which was deemed by the ruling class before, after the revolution, as the national language. My father, on the other hand, in the province where I actually grew up in, is from the Kapampangan ethnic group, and he has another language. But then at school, we were being told that for the Philippines to be globally competitive, we need to learn English.
0: Awesome. Great job, David. Now, hear from Temiti from Episode 1 on Pacific Identity.
1: Um, so, yeah, my name is Temiti. I was named after the sea in Tahitian by my parents, because, well, my mom and dad and my grandparents were all from different places in the Pacific and abroad, and the sea represents the living space between the lands which connect our families. They also wanted me to take on this element, significance and mana. My grandma and I were close. She was a traveler and a storyteller, and she educated me to become a traveler and storyteller every night by telling me bedtime stories about us, our family, our culture, other people's cultures. Beautiful, beautiful.
0: Here is Tua here again, because as I mentioned, your girl walks the talk. So this is her first mention of family from episode three on Queer Pacifica.
2: My LGBT family face homophobia and transphobia here due to the teaching forced by colonization. For many, it seems that being LGBT doesn't matter to them, as long as you're not in their family. It seems like it's okay as long as there's distance. I have seen the aunties who have only ever seen me as another local girl look at me in disgust. My dad told me bisexuality isn't real. But I knew how I felt. I still haven't brought a girl home. I'm terrified of being rejected by those I love most because they don't like who I love. I'm terrified I wouldn't be able to bring a girlfriend to meet my niece and nephew. Nothing breaks my heart more than knowing my own blood can see love as anything to be angry about. My LGBT Pacifica family, homophobia and transphobia are not inherent in our cultures. They were taught to us by our colonizers. I am so sorry this world has been unkind to you. Now, hear from
0: Shaw from episode three for Our Queer Pacifica.
4: It never occurred to me to talk about my sexuality or who I'm attracted to. It just, I didn't think it was anyone's business and I didn't think it was interesting. But in my early twenties, I did move in with my partner who was a woman. And again, I didn't talk to anyone about it. Um, My personal life, my social group, all of that was away from my family, but My father, being the man who essentially made me, raised me, and is the reason I'm a functional human being today, he knew without me ever saying. And I have a whole Twitter thread that I retweet every June with my whole coming out story, which is much longer than I really have time to share here. For the time I lived in the United States, up until I was 28, it was not a big deal. There were Palauans in the community who are very religious and they had things to say. And my father always defended me. My mother always defended me. So I didn't think anything of it. It wasn't until I lived in Palau when my father's brother showed up at the home that my grandfather left to my other uncle um, with an axe, uh, screaming at me and my partner who was in the house. We lived with my uncle at his request, screaming running around the house with an axe yelling like get rid of her kick her out she's married to a woman and that was a little bit less than fun but that was my first really big experience with my sexuality being a problem i i have extended family who have a ministry and fellowship and It's just a thing nobody talks about openly, except for an older cousin who wanted me to repent and give my testament because everyone loves me and wants to help me through this problematic time in my life. But the time I was living in Palau, I didn't know when I had moved there, when I was 28, that homosexuality was actually, on the books, a crime.
0: Thank you for sharing, Shaw. Now, here is Rokin of the Gumagela Collective for the Queer Pacifica, episode three.
5: Trans and non-binary are Western colonial articulations. Nonetheless, people understand trans more than non-binary. I have an aunt who's trans and she also participates in the Art of drag. There was a big rift between her and the family when she first came out and started to transition. Years passed in one year during our great-grandmother's famous Three Kings fiesta She came back. When she saw my aunt, she asked, is that really you? The real you? My aunt replied, yes, this is me. Gram-Gram then asked, are you happy? To which my aunt says, yes, I am. Gram-Gram took a second, and all she said was that that's all that matters. I think about um, oftentimes we're afraid to come out or afraid to share with our family the things that we're discovering about ourselves, afraid of what they might say or do, and sometimes it can be pretty surprising.
0: Very sweet. Now, on to Miss Rhonda, our wonderful Fijian soul, who just came out with a new song, which I put in the show notes. This is her piece from episode five on artivism in the Pacific.
3: As a child, uh, my mother was a, um, of course, a staunch Christian, specifically with the Assemblies of God denomination. Now, that church is uh, well-known for having worship teams at the age of five, uh, my mother noticed that I had a gift for singing. Um, every single chance uh, on Sundays my mother would walk up, request if uh, she could have a special number. Um, but really, she was making this request uh, for me. She'll make a request that I'd like to give a special number, blah, blah, blah. I'd like to call my son up. <laughs> and that would be the routine Every Sunday. And that's exactly what drew me to religion, loving religion, because of the the space that was provided for me to express my art form. I loved singing.
0: Next is Simone. Yes, you did hear from her before on episode five on artivism in the Pacific.
1: My favorite story that's ever come out of this so far is my mom telling me one time, you know, we were driving around, and I'm always constantly looking for um, different flowers in public, kind of private places I can kind of mooch off of, or not mooch, borrow and appreciate up close. Um, and she told me, "No, Simone, I never really noticed um, all these different flowers and all these different beautiful plants and things that we have on the island. I just didn't know they existed. And I feel like that's something that, like, it's a metaphor kind of, to me at least, how a lot of people might view the, like... Guam in general and that we just have so much to offer and so much is out there and I will hopefully I can like my main goal is to keep highlighting all the beauty that Guam has to offer
0: great now here's our girl Ha'ani from episode six on Pacifica values this past year was one of the most difficult ones of my life on a particularly hard day I
1: went to visit my grandma and grandpa's cemetery plot here in Guahan, where they lay beside each other. As I sat down on the bench before them, with my eyes slowly tearing up, the wind picked up to the point that the two large coconut trees beside me started to wrestle with each other. After hearing some of the trees' leaves drop, I felt a very cool breeze move from my arms to my shoulders. For some reason, the phrase na'i animu kept ringing in my ear once that gush of wind passed, and I knew it was my grandparents encouraging me be strong, and to keep going.
0: Very heartfelt. Now here's our favorite Saina in the making, Tomas from episode 6 on Pacifica values.
6: I guess in a Western context, our indigenous practice of Poxai is comparable to the foster care or adoption system. However, in our context, this is practiced mainly between family members. It is not uncommon for a person to hear Chamorro say that they were raised by family members who were not their birth parents. For example, my older sister and brother were raised by our grandparents since they were infants until they were old enough to go to school. I myself at one point was quote unquote adopted by my auntie when I was in the States during high school. She treated me like any one of her children, and she even encouraged me to get a part-time job during my senior year, which I believe prepared me at an early age for the realities of adulthood. But my family is just one of many in which Pocsai has become a working part of our vocabulary. I've met countless Chamorros who've shared that they were raised by their grandparents, or their auntie, or their great aunt, or an older cousin or a godparent, or even a close family friend. To me, it's like that old adage, it takes a village to raise a child. And at the end of the day, it doesn't matter who raises you because in our culture, we have a deep understanding of community as being more than a group of people. We understand deeply that a community thrives on every member, recognizing that they not only have something to benefit from the group but they also have something to contribute. This community could be the larger family unit or it could be the wider island unit that is composed of many larger family units. It's really up to us to um, expand on this idea and strengthen our value of community.
0: And- Last but never least, are Tongan Chetlu Lisiate from Episode 6 on Pacifica Values.
7: And as for my values, uh, if I had to pick one, that'd probably be reciprocity, empathy, and solidarity. For the first one, my grandma, Baline Fakahikoa, rest in peace, got a call from my parents that they needed help taking care of the kids. Within a week, my grandma was on a plane to America for the very first time crossing the same wana that our ancestors lived and thrived on to come take care of her mokopuna. She came out of love, certainly, but a reciprocal love that flows both ways. The concept of working together, struggling together, mourning together, with and for each other, for the benefit of the collective, is one that guides me daily. As for empathy, learning to understand and share the feelings of another, and in turn be called to action based on that empathy, has shifted my worldview completely. My parents' house growing up felt more like a motel than a house because we would always have family over. Maybe they'd stay a week, maybe they'd stay a year. When I was younger, I was just happy for the company. I didn't think much of it. But that open door policy that my parents and my grandma lived by taught me at an early age the radical notion of empathy. I still run into folks who used to stay with us and truly enjoy seeing them thrive here. And as for the last one, and to me the most important one, solidarity, I think this one is a synthesis of the previous two. The mutual aspect of reciprocity and the ability to empathize with others.
0: That was beautiful once again, Lisiate. One of my favorite pieces on family in this entire season, honestly. Though obviously you heard some great pieces from everyone. And I am sure that there are many more people who mention family in their contributions that I'm missing. But these 10 were the first ones that came to mind for me. Notice all the different people these contributors mentioned. Aunties, uncles, mom and dad, a French granddad, a Tongan grandmother, friends of the family who are more like family than blood relatives. You know, it took me a while to realize that a relative does not always mean family. But anyway... If you follow our Instagram, I highly recommend you go to our episode post from the Values episode to see Lisiate's grandmother and to see him as a tiny swaddled infant in his father's arms, his three cute older sisters looking not more than maybe two, four, and six years old, their smiling mother behind them, watching over them, a little stooped, smiling grandma beside them. That family photo was truly beautiful. Those pieces were all beautiful and revealed the complicated aspects of families, how they can be restrictive yet liberating, loving or misled by colonialism, and the huge role they play in all of our lives. The family we inherit, the ones we create, the family that we choose will be essential to our survival and to the survival of our cultures as a whole. Because of this, we need for the sake of ourselves and our families and future families to begin opening up those cans of worms in family discussions about our past traumas or finding good, healthy ways to cope collectively so that we as individuals and our cultures can start to heal. The past affects us all so much already. Don't let it affect your future, but do let it guide you. Let us respect each other's capacity for trauma and acknowledge that the family member you know and love may have also been traumatized by you. Us indigenous people have been colonized and we were traumatized by those same people and by settlers. But we also did cause our own traumas within our cultures and families. I mean, nobody's perfect. No family is perfect. So shout out to the multi-generational households trying to survive together. Shout out to the single people living alone searching for their future families. Shout out to the young families struggling to make ends meet To the graduates and undergraduate students living diasporic lives away from home. Hang in there to the ones living back at home. (laughs) Shout out to the grandmothers who fly across a familiar ocean to an unfamiliar place within a week of getting the call. Rest in paradise and peace to the family we have lost this year. The memories of them still smiling at us not too long ago are still so fresh. Don't forget that they are still around. Just now, they're ancestors, and they're guiding you and protecting you. And that brings us to the end of the narrative portion of this episode. How about you take a break and drink some water, tea, coffee, alcohol, pick your coping mechanism, and we will be right back with an awesome paper out of the Institute of Comparative Politics at the University of Bergen in Norway, On settler colonialism and the three most relevant cases of that in the Pacific that you should be aware of. All right, now that we're back, our scientific paper today is entitled A Wolf in Sheep's Clothing Settler Voting Rights and the Elimination of the Indigenous Demos. in U.S. Pacific territories. This paper was published in April of 2019 in the journal called Postcolonial Studies, authored by Aaron John Spitzer, who is a PhD candidate at the Institute of Comparative Politics at the University of Bergen in Norway, Norway, Ah, interesting. His research examines the settler colonial backlash against indigenous sovereignty in developed democracies. He has published six papers on Indigenous peoples' struggles against colonialism in Canada, Australia, as well as the Pacific. So this one caught my eye and was a great read, to be honest. Why is this paper important? Firstly, these three lawsuits discussed in the paper are hugely important to us in the Pacific. And why? Because they are... All settlers who used the backing of the U.S. and supposed no law shall blah 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 against indigenous peoples in these areas. Who were there first? Who had sovereignty taken away and without their consent and in all cases without their knowledge or understanding? Boiling down this paper brings me to this example. A, imagine a sneaky greasy white lawyer gets the deed to your house in their name without your knowledge and consent while you're still living there. Mostly unaware of what had happened. You continue to live in that house, but notice some changes happening. A shooting range built on your parents' graves. Some new people arrive who move there because it was a great business opportunity. Some poor H2 workers set up camp in the back, somewhere hidden from the general public. And while they all live there, they all make it their home. Trees are cut down in the jungles you used to play with in your family. That white man and you pass away but your children know that the house is rightfully theirs. They just can't afford the fancy lawyers to prove themselves right. And the greasy lawyer has made it next to impossible for them to bring a case to court because they weren't taught this hidden history of what had happened. So now let me ask you, if the house deed was stolen or obtained through deceptive means, basically if something is stolen and someone else bought it, does that make it theirs even if they didn't know? The law almost always rules in favor of the original owner. This was something I hadn't known until I took law classes for my random paralegal studies minor. If something is stolen and someone else bought it, does the second owner or the third owner get a say? No. So keep this in mind. And now we move on. So who does this paper affect in the Pacific? I would argue that this affects all indigenous lands, but to be more specific, all indigenous lands in and around the Pacific. And if we wanted to zoom in further, this article affects Hawaii, Guam, and the CNMI, or the Commonwealth of the Northern Mariana Islands, all of which are possessions, quote unquote, of the US. Now, please excuse me while I go vomit for a second. I'll be right back. So how does this affect the Pacific? Well, just four centuries ago, what is now the United States was home to an array of self-ruling indigenous peoples who presided over territories and citizenries they considered their own. Then came the tide of Europeans deposing indigenous people and enthroning themselves. Their tools were diverse. Treaties, Bibles, boarding schools, guns. But their goal was simple. Make theirs ours. These are quotes taken directly from the paper, by the way. Don't think that I came up with this niceness. Hawaii was, of course, swallowed into the American body politic, but its indigenous people, unlike Native Americans, have an ambiguous constitutional status. Similarly, colonies like the Commonwealth of the Northern Mariana Islands and Guam are in metapolitical limbo. They are not exactly ours, not securely theirs. Insofar as native sovereignty in and of Hawaii, CNMI, and Guam is disputed, these places may be seen as still active fronts of U.S. settler colonialism. In the Pacific, we can see settlers brandishing a new tool of elimination, individual voting rights, asserted in opposition to indigenous anti-colonial efforts. This tool has received little attention, The article suggests that settlers wielding this tool in effect deliver a one-two punch, condemning as illiberal those voting laws flowing from indigenous sovereignty and then swapping them with race-neutral laws, supposedly, that serve to enthrone settlers. It makes the point that how these rights cases are resolved hinges on how they are framed, on whether courts see the appropriate subject of justice as the universal individual or the constitutional prior native group. This article then finds that where such disputes are framed as individual rights cases, settlers can achieve control of metapolitics. So having problematized the existence of a discrete them, they, the settlers, may dissolve indigenous political selfhood into the broader American we. In this manner, settler rights, though asserted under the guise of liberalization, may thwart indigenous liberation. This article um, examined these dynamics by analyzing the three recent lawsuits in the U.S. Pacific. In all three, settlers charged that their rights were violated as a result of indigenous assertion of self-determination. So the author of the paper used the cases Rice v. Keitano in Hawaii, which was decided by the U.S. Supreme Court in 2000. And then he also examined Davis v. Commonwealth Election Commission involving CNMI, which was decided in 2016. And then the author looked at the 2017 case of Davis v. Guam. So I highly suggest you take a look at the show notes and actually read this article because as far as having a handy guide to all three of these cases, summarized like kind of nicely without too much legalese, it opened my eyes to the Rice v. Catano case because I had actually already knew about the two Davis cases in the Marianas. As Patrick Wolfe famously observed, a colonial variant called settler colonialism has proved far more resilient than colonization. The U.S. is an archetypal settler colony. Others include Canada, Australia, and Aotearoa. Settler colonies may have begun conventionally as imperial possessions yoked for profit, but at one point they were flooded with metropolitan and other developed world settlers. Motivated by what Wolfe calls a logic of elimination, these settlers strived to assimilate, confine, and expel or kill the indigenous people, take their homelands, and establish a new colonial society on the expropriated land base. The author states that settler colonialism destroys to replace with native sovereignty first dissolved, then settlers installed. And in this manner, Wolf says, Settler colonialism supplants indigenous jurisdictions with new versions of the settler motherland. Once native sovereignty is eliminated, indigenous collectives are left with two options. The first is they get to be absorbed into the settler body politic. The second is they can choose to stay different, no longer as a political order, but as a distinct racial group. Many scholars have observed how indigenous group difference, once racialized, is often then condemned as discriminatory. Some scholars have even noted how, for indigenous groups, racialization is self-destructive, or could be self-destructive. Robert Porter argues that in the United States, political onwehoe misperceive themselves as ethnic Native Americans, impairing tribal vitality. So please forgive me if I butchered that word. I'm so sorry. Ongwehowe. That's a cool word though. Yet little research has considered how settlers pursuing a logic of elimination have in recent decades weaponized liberalism, moving it from the realm of rhetoric into the arena of the courts, and how in doing so, they assert rights in a manner that undermines the foundations of indigenous governance, altering the answers to who are the people. Where indigenous peoples assert sovereignty, settlers may strive to eradicate that sovereignty, delegitimizing the pre-colonial them and replacing it with us. Sounds like Alta Roa, sounds like French Polynesia, sounds like West Papua. So settlers weaponize voting rights through a two-phase approach. Basically what happened, right, is that settlers came in because they perceived that they had opportunities to, you know, make home. They go in, make home in that place, and then they look and try to dismantle or basically they try to bring the indigenous peoples of that place down so that they themselves can climb higher. You definitely see it in places like Hawaii, but you also see it in places like Guam. It's funny because if you look at the three places that this paper examined, you would see that in some place like CNMI, there actually aren't that many settlers that are um, in office. It became a possession of the US in the 1970s. So you know they are still very much less westernized. And because of that, You can see it in the legislature. Then you can go even, you know, one level of magnitude of westernization higher, and you would see in Guahan that the legislature has a couple of settlers. And, you know, I mean, not all settlers are bad, but if you just see how much they reign over the indigenous people— You can see that in Guahan, there's more settlers in their legislature. And then you go to Hawaii, where you hardly see many Kanaka in positions of power. You usually actually see settlers in positions of power. And you notice that Hawaii, Guahan, and the CNMI have all been colonized or been neo-colonialized by the United States at different times. So... You can really see this entire process going on in the paper. The thing that's described, settler colonialism, is so prevalent. Like, it's crazy that it never really occurred to me before. So, the paper concludes this way. In bringing their cases, Freddie Rice, John Davis Jr., and Arnold Davis all claim violation of rights of the second-order variety concerning... Laws of democracy. Such laws govern the democratic process and attach to individuals, not polities. Such laws may thus appear quite removed from such metapolitical questions as who are the people. But clearly these impugned laws of democracy in Hawaii, Sienamae, and Guam were all downstream effects of distinct structures of democracy. But of course, Rice, Davis, Jr. and Davis appealed not merely for indigenous voter preferencing to be invalidated, but they also appealed for voting to be liberalized. As Rohrer discerned, this move naturalized settler subjectivity via a colorblind ideology. Opening decisions concerning indigenous affairs to every resident of Hawaii, Sinemai, and Guam has the consequence of redefining the structure of democracy that governs those affairs. Finally, Rice, Davis, and Davis show that when settler colonizers strategically assert individual voting rights and where justice is framed so as to validate that strategy, a metapolitical conquest may result. Settlers able to dissolve the indigenous them into the settler we may achieve power over indigenous peoples and lands. They may colonize the demos. That is, at least for now, what has happened on the frontier of American settler expansion in the U.S. Pacific. So what is my opinion on this paper? Um, my opinion on this is very clear. It is and always will be that indigenous lands belong in indigenous hands. Does that mean I want to kick out all the settlers permanently and, you know, cause a total new world order? No, it does not. And settlers got to really work on that response, man. Like, all it means is I want... The people to decide their status in relation to the colonizer. That's all it means. It doesn't mean anything may change necessarily. Status quo is an option. Really what it is, is we're going to need settlers to be okay with indigenous people wanting to take control and take care of their land. That is literally it. If you want to be a part of that party, come and join us. Because it's the party that is fighting climate change the hardest. It is the party that is doing a lot of work. And it is the party that is disenfranchised at every opportunity. Including the opportunity to just simply exist on their own land. If you are a settler on a land, I hope you are joining a cause. Anyway. So my position in this is that I believe and wholeheartedly support the rights of indigenous people to determine their position as a political body, as whatever they want to define themselves as in relation to their colonizer. I support the right for them to self-determine, to determine for themselves where they will go in the future wholeheartedly. And by doing so, you know, I will be taken care of, the land will be taken care of, we can kick the colonizers out. What is being done about this? Well, Guam has repeatedly been petitioning the UN for their right to self-determination as one of the last remaining colonized countries and territories in the world today. I mentioned last episode that there are some in the UN who agree that Hawaii's status as a state needs to be revisited due to the lack of a treaty of annexation. The link which I will include in the show notes. It's a great YouTube video. I hope you watch it. I am sure you have noticed that the Hawaii case, Rice v. Keitano, set the precedent and was the example used to keep the Marianas, both Guahan and the CNMI, from exercising their rights to define their own status as well. Future thoughts? These rulings are incredibly important for sure, but they are not the be-all, end-all. They are yet another front which we indigenous people of the Pacific must adapt to and fight on. We must defend ourselves from the imperialism of the U.S., their supposed war with China and with North Korea. We must live in this constant state of fear where our islands that were taken without our consent, our homes, might be a target for nuclear warfare or swallowed up by the rising ocean due to global warming caused largely in part by these quote-unquote, developed nations, and especially caused largely by the emissions of the United States military, which emits more carbon per year than 100 countries combined. This I discussed in the RIMPAC bonus episode one, which I suggest you check out. It is re-traumatizing, right? It's traumatizing again and again. But fight on we must, because we have no choice. We have inherited this fight. What kinds of ancestors would we be if we gave up in the face of danger to our keiki, to our famagu'un. Not the kind I want to be, for sure. And that is the end of my thoughts on this scientific paper. Thank you so much for your attention. I really, really appreciate it. I swear this is only going to be a few more minutes. We got some great feedback on the episode and I want to say that I'm so happy that we have reached over 1,000 followers on Twitter. Yay! And are also working to bring you our next episode which will be part three on our decolonization series. So stay on the lookout for that. Find these episodes on our website deeppacificpod.org with no www in front, by the way. That will make it not work. You can also find us on all the major podcast streaming platforms, except YouTube. We're still working on that after this season is over. Speaking of that, I'd like to mention that we'll be going on a little hiatus over the holidays to allow us to juggle life duties that might be difficult to juggle otherwise. We will be posting bonus episodes during this break time, though, that we'll be announcing on our podcast social media at Deep Pacific Pod on Twitter and Instagram. So please follow us on there for that and join the Deep Pacifica community. Coming into October, many of our families are wondering how we will handle the holidays coming up. In some places in the Pacific, such as the FSM, Aotearoa, other COVID-free places, they can have holidays like they did in 2019. But for us in colonized territories and states, it is not always so. This is what we'll be discussing partially in our next episode on religion. In the Pacific, what it stands for, to us Pacifica people what it has been rooted in historically, so yes, it'll be a little heavy, and where we think it will go in our futures. It will be part three on our series for decolonization, so please do watch out for that. Tweet us or message us at Deep Pacific Pod to share your views, any thoughts you may have, whether this new bit worked out for you or anything else. You have reached the end of the episode. I super, super appreciate your time your attention like i cannot believe that i have so many people that are passionate about our cultures in the collective and following us and retweeting us and sharing us with their families it really makes me super happy and it touches my heart and everyone else in the collective and the deep pacific council's hearts thank you so much for your support please take care of yourselves